As soon as I ask my opening question, you're going to know why I spent so much time praying just now. Here's the question. Once you're saved, can you be unsaved? Uh, Some of you, maybe that's a new area for you to explore. Others of you have been trying to chip away at it and try to understand the answer to that question. It's a question that's been debated by Christians for centuries, for centuries. Once you're saved, can you be unsaved? Can you lose your salvation? Is it once saved, always saved, what people call eternal security? Or can you lose your salvation? You understand the importance of the, importance of the question, right? How secure is it to be saved? Can you say, yes, I'm going to heaven? Now, some would critique that. Some would critique my position, and I know the position that many of you hold, that many of us here hold to, that a true believer cannot lose the salvation given to them by God. (laughs) That's the part we tend to emphasize, right? God gave it to you. So the real question is, does he ungive it? Does he take it back? At what point do you sin too much? And God says, okay, some sins I can tolerate, but that many sins, I'm taking salvation back. You're starting back to square, you're going back to square one. But some criticize the position uh, that I take that you can't lose your salvation. And there are many criticisms, I suppose, but one of the primary criticisms is that if that were true, you would have a free license to sin. If all you have to do is confess Jesus, believe on him, and you're in no matter what, you could do whatever you want then. That's the criticism that often uh, is, I guess, uh, that, that confronts eternal security. Uh, once saved, always saved means that you're able to do, live a carefree life and do what you want. But I think that's not uh, once saved, always saved. I think that thinks he's saved but really isn't saved. Because someone says they believe doesn't mean they necessarily do. That's the tricky part, right? What is salvation? What does it mean to come before the Lord? Why do I do baptism interviews and don't just go, oh, you believe? Dunk. What's the point of an interview? If all we have to do is take someone's word for it that they're saved, is there nothing to investigate? What am I investigating? It's an important question for sure. And uh, when we look at the Lord's message to the church in Philadelphia in in Revelation chapter 3, that's where we're going to be today. You can turn there now. When we look at the Lord's message to the church in Philadelphia, uh, we're going to see today, I'm going to put a lot of other verses alongside it. Because I think for many, this verse taken by itself might seem to say the opposite position of what I just told you I hold. In other words, if you look at the church in Philadelphia, the message to the church in Philadelphia, by itself, it looks like, huh, maybe you could definitely lose your salvation. In fact, as you move through these messages, don't you see Jesus over and over saying, hey, make it to the end, and I'll give you this reward. Push all the way, and then at the end of the, when you cross the finish line, when you break the tape, then I'll give you this reward. That's what he says over and over, isn't it? So some would say, obviously, You have to finish the race. You have to put in the work. You have to demonstrate it all the way to the end. Then at the end, when Jesus sees that you made it, then he grants you salvation. 
That's what it seems like. So today, I'm going to recruit the help, the backup, the reinforcements of other passages to show you that if, if you believe Scripture does not contradict itself, we have to put these passages together somehow and say somehow they work together. Okay, somehow they work together. And I think that what Jesus is telling the church in Philadelphia is a very positive message. Uh, this is one of the two churches of the seven churches that has no rebukes in it, no corrections. Okay, he's not, I love this, but I hate this part. There's no hate this part. part okay, it's very positive. And I think what Jesus is communicating to the church in Philadelphia and through this to all true churches in all times and in all places is that Jesus grants an unrobbable security to his churches, which is the opposite of what we might take away from it if we don't look at it carefully. Jesus grants an unrobbable security to his churches. He wants Philadelphia to know, even though things don't look sure, uh, many commentaries I read uh, talk about how Philadelphia would have recently experienced many earthquakes, buildings in shambles. They were forgiven. Uh, they were given tax breaks by the Roman government. Uh, they didn't have to pay the same tributes as everybody else as a way to try to give them relief from all their crumbled buildings and knocked over statues and whatever else they had going on. Their lives were upside down at this time. And Jesus steps in and goes, I know there's physical chaos, there's geographical chaos, there's natural chaos, there's governmental chaos, there's persecution, there's a lot for you to endure, but I've got you. Which is different than saying, there's a lot for you to endure, but you better buck up. Because if you don't finish, then I don't got you. And you, you take it one of two ways. I don't want to intentionally step into controversy, but you take it one of two ways. I think the way to take it, and I'm going to try to prove my case to you, not all of you will agree. Not all Christians agree. I didn't used to agree. Um, by God's grace, I think I came to understand uh, the truth of those songs that we sung, that uh, not I, but Christ in me. You know, I don't do it. Jesus does it in me. Jesus grants an unrobable security to his churches. Verse 7. Here's the first verse. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Now, just pause there. I'm going to remind you for now the sixth time that each of the letters to each of the seven churches begins with John pulling a sliver of that first vision he saw of Jesus. Remember that big vision? He's got bronze feet, wool hair, white uh, robe, the golden sash, the seven stars in his hand. That vision, each message to each of the seven churches, he pulls a sliver of that vision and puts it into his introduction. And in this one, he, he touches on the keys. In that earlier vision, it was the keys of what? Anyone remember? Okay, death and Hades. I have the keys of death and Hades. Hades being that afterlife netherworld, okay? That place that you don't want to be forever, uh, that afterlife holding place, and you're hoping that after that, your eternal place isn't hell but heaven, okay? So that's just a, a place, just to be clear. No one is in hell right now because that's a future reality. The, 
so what they believe was a holding place, Hades. Whole other sermon. But what I want to try to make clear to you is Hades and death aren't two separate things. He's not, I have the key of death, but not only do I have the key of death, I also have a separate key to a separate thing called Hades. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. What is my destiny? Where am I going to be after this life? So what if I endure? So what if I say, pay tribute to Caesar? What if I say Caesar is Lord instead of saying Jesus is Lord? What's the difference? The difference is where you end up. That's the difference. And who has the say-so as to where you end up? Jesus does. He secured it through his victory over death. So he's got the key. And the only way to escape death is through the one who has the key to escape. He's the only one that can let you out of the prison where death is not a a passing point to victory. Death is a a, a passing point to forever losing. Okay, to not be a conqueror. What's the opposite of a conqueror? Conquered, lost, you lost. Jesus is the difference maker because he holds the key. There's no other key. There aren't other ways to escape death. Jesus is the way to do it. Now, interestingly, though, here, he doesn't say death. He says David. And no, I'm not going to be like, well, the Greek word for David is death. No, it's not. You know, <laughs> it's not trickery. He changes the imagery a little bit, and I just want to remind you, we get too locked into, it's like we have a canvas and we're reading scripture and we want to be able to paint the image and nail it down. Okay, he's got three keys now. Oh my goodness, he has three keys. I have to add a key to his chain. He's got one for death, one for Hades, and one for David. It's like a janitor, the custodian walking around, you hear him coming down the hall with the keys jangling from his pants, right? I think that's the wrong image. Everything has to be separate. Everything, oh, this is the key of this, this is the key of that. There's three keys. Now we have a three-key theology. Now we've got a whole denomination called the three-key church. It's craziness, okay? I made that up, but some of you understand that we're not too far from that sometimes, the way we interpret Scripture. He's shifting it, and the reason why I think he's shifting it is because uh, he's changing the imagery of escaping, uh, escaping death into life through his key. Now the imagery is escaping the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God. It's a kingdom key, which isn't a separate thing. That is the thing. The domain of darkness is death. And to have life is to be in the kingdom of God. And he inherits this from his great, great, great grandfather, David, right? He is the ultimate one that was promised to David. This channels Isaiah twenty-two, I'll just read it for you real quickly. It won't be on the screen. He says, I will place on his shoulder Eliakim. I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. Now, why do you think he's emphasizing from Isaiah this door that if he shuts it, no one can open it. If he opens it, no one can shut it. What is he emphasizing there? Jesus' power. Because he's the only one with the key, you can't shut it. You can't close it. You can't open it. And if you open it, you don't have the power to keep it open. If you shut it, you don't have the power to keep it shut. Only one has the power to make the pathway open and keep it open. Do you see where I'm going with that? There's only one who has the power, not just to have a key, but the only key. Not just to open, but to open it so that it's unshuttable or to shut it so that it's not, un- so that it's not openable. It kind of reminds you of uh, the ark when Noah and his family were in the ark and then God shut the door. Why does Moses emphasize that God is the one that shut the door? 
Because you can scratch and claw at the door, but when it's too late, it's too late. And there's people that are in the ark, and they can't get out. And there's people that are outside of the ark, and they can't get in. The door is shut because God shut it, and only God shuts, uh, can open doors that he shuts. That's pretty clear, right? So because he inherits this verse from Isaiah 22, 22, he is the ultimate one that God grants power to open the door to life or open the door to the kingdom of God or shut the door to life, meaning you stay in death, or shut the door to the kingdom of God, meaning you stay in the domain of darkness. So I ask you, going through that door, transferring from death to life, or transferring from the domain of darkness into God's kingdom, when, you, is, when that transfer happens, is that reversible? If it is reversible, who has the power to reverse it? And I think if you are tracking with where he's going so far, it seems pretty irreversible. And at the very least, if it were reversible, who's the one who has the power to reverse it? Jesus now. Jesus now, okay? Let me just throw a couple verses up here to help us out with this. This transfer from one place to another. Colossians 1, uh, 13 and 14. We'll have this here. He has, God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. What's really happening there? How does that transfer take place? Redemption. How does redemption happen? What is redemption? Forgiveness of sin. Okay. So in Christ, in the beloved son, we have redemption. We have the forgiveness of sins. When does that happen? Does that happen now or does that happen at the end if I finish the race? If I live the life that's good enough, if I live the life that's faithful enough, and on my last day in the hospital bed, the chaplain comes to me, and I ask him, so do I get forgiveness? And he goes, however many hours you have left, man, you better just finish strong. What are you doing at least not reading scripture? Or can you answer, have you trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the one who holds the key? Have you put your faith in him? He secures it. Not sometime in the future. Now, right now, he secures it. We come to the table and we approach forgiveness now. We don't come to the table and hope we get forgiveness in the future. So this transfer doesn't happen in the future. This transfer happens now and it's secured by forgiveness not performance. If we're forgiveness and performance, meaning as I perform, he lends forgiveness depending on my performance, how many of us could stomach that thought and actually think we'd make it? If we were based on that, he can come in the middle of my sermon, I wouldn't make it. I need his forgiveness every moment, every thought. Several verses in the Bible speak about receiving the kingdom now, but entering the kingdom later. This kind of messed with me as I was preparing this message. I'm like, it's true. Scripture speaks of entering the kingdom later, not now. But Scripture also talks about receiving the kingdom now, not later. Right? What's going on there? Well, here's the simplest way to think about it. You will enter it later if you're in it now. Those are your options. Your options are either you hope to enter it later if you perform enough now, or no, I'm definitely a citizen now, 
And that's definitely my home later. It's secured. I think that second one is reality. Let's put a few verses up here just to help you out, and then we'll come back to Revelation 3, I promise. All right, John 3, verse 5. Let's do a few of these pretty briefly. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So what does it take to enter the kingdom of God? A long life of performance? No, a birth. Right? So granting entrance to the kingdom of God is based on, in Colossians we saw, forgiveness, redemption. And then in John 3, Jesus calls it birth. It's something that happens to you. You know, when somebody asks you about when you were born, you don't go, well, you know what? I was going to be born in January, but I was like, man, it's kind of cold. So I birthed myself in the summer. Right? That's ludicrous because you don't birth yourself. Birth happens to you. This is why Jesus goes on to say it's like the spirit. The spirit is like the wind. You can't tell when it's coming, where it's coming from. You remember that? You can't capture it, put it in a bottle and go, oh, here, have some spirit, be saved. It's... It blows wherever it wills. It happens to you. It comes over you. But it's a reality that happens now, not later. John 6, 39 and 40. John 6, 39 and 40. This passage is a classic. Do we have that one? John 6? No? Okay. Y'all have Bibles, right? Turn there. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not skipping this verse. John chapter 6. You need to have this verse highlighted, underlined, underscored. I probably missed it when I was emailing a bunch of these verses out to the team. But John chapter 6, uh, I mean, this it's a long chapter, as you can see when you get there. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, third book in the New Testament. Uh, John chapter 6, we're going to drop down, fast-forwarding into verses 39 and 40. And so Jesus is talking about he's the bread of life. And what does that mean? What did we just celebrate when we ate that bread? Uh, He says, uh, I'll just back up, might as well, since we have these verses here. Verse 37, all the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Come to me when? In the end? That's too late then. Come to me now. The invitation is now. Come. Come to the Lord, the Savior. Eat his bread. All the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me will never cast out. Verse 38, for I have come down from heaven to not do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now, here it is, verse 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should, what is God's will? Okay, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Raise what up? All that he has given me. What has he given him? Us. His people, his sheep, his flock. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him. When is the time for belief? Now, not later. Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him or her up on the last day. Who does he raise up on the last day? The people that made it? In a sense, yes. But why did they make it? They believed in the Son. This is salvation by faith. This is salvation by grace. Not salvation by how good you were able to make your life. And it's a radical difference. When you see verses like that, you see this sort of link, these links in the chain. Everyone that the Father draws to the Son, the Son keeps. The Son never casts out. 
Who are the people that are drawn to the Son? The people that believe on Him. And what happens to the people that believe on Him? He raises them up. He resurrects them in the end. With How many of them? All of them. Because what he's emphasizing is, I'm a shepherd that doesn't lose sheep. I don't go, where's sheep number 98? I don't know. What, I, I don't lose sheep. Is what he's channeling in this imagery here. Okay, so... Uh, we looked at John 6. Do we have John 10? All right, so John 10, 28. Here's a quick one. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. There's the assurance again. Quickly to Ephesians 4, verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now, I don't care what kind of seal you think about here, well, unless you think it's the animal seal. That has nothing to do with it. But think of any seal. What is its job? You go to the store, you're buying a jar of pickles, and you come home, and when you go to open it, you didn't hear that pop. It just opened. You're going to eat those pickles? Right? Somebody might have had some pickles when they were stocking the shelves at Jewel, and the only reason why you suspect that is because the seal was broken. This is the same in ancient times. I write a letter, I write a scroll, I put that drop of wax on the seam to hold the scroll shut, and then I take my ring with my insignia that people don't have copies of, and I impress that ring symbol into that seal and hand it to the messenger. The person who receives the messenger knows that no one changed this message, no one edited this message, because only one person has that ring. And if that seal is unbroken, that means this went from A to B destination, untouched, unharmed. Now, how in the world do you describe that? If I'm able to lose my salvation, how can we cling to this? We were sealed for the day of redemption. Unless you unseal yourself, that's the problem. Only one person opens and shuts. We'll do one more, Jude 24. We don't usually spend a whole lot of time in Jude, but here's uh, this verse from the book of Jude. Now, to him who was able to keep you from stumbling... And to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Is there more to it? Is that it? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) The sentence continues in verse 25. So listen, here's what I want you to look at. Him who was able is God, right? Who is able to keep you from stumbling? Who is able to present you blameless in the end? Okay? If, If it's not God himself. So you see their security built into this process where I might stumble and not make it, it's possible that in the end I will not be able to be presented before the presence of God's glory with great joy. What is to keep me from stumbling? And God help the Christian that answers me. God is the one who's able. And if God is the one who is able, the next question is, is he competent? Does God fumble? There goes the football analogies again. You guys, my wife is messing me up, man. No is the answer to that. No is the answer to that. Now, those who believe that you can lose your salvation, they understand that God is all-powerful. It's not like they're like, no, but God has weaknesses. He has bad days. He has off days. They wouldn't answer that. They would just say, in this situation, God just goes, ah, but that's on you because free will. I just don't know how you read verses like this that are banking on God's ability to never drop the ball 
What's the whole purpose of that if it's not his omnipotence that I'm banking on, but mine? And I tell you again, if it's based on mine, I'm not in. So with those verses in mind, many, many, many other verses. Now I know you might be sitting there, you can say, but I have a whole other slew of verses that sound like the opposite. And what I'm saying is we have to put the two things together. Some of those opposites are in our passage today. That's why I'm giving you so many of these verses, so we can have those in our minds. But I see what Jesus doing, is doing here. And, and here's, here's how I summarize the, this passage. Jesus sees works in Philadelphia that affirm they are his. And then he promises to keep them, to keep that sure, to keep that intact. And that word affirm is really important because he, Jesus doesn't, See the church in Philadelphia and go, oh, wow, you guys are doing really, really well. If you keep it up, then I'll save you. Why? The reason why I say affirm is he looks and sees Philadelphia is doing really well, and he goes, that shows that I've saved you. That affirms that I've saved you. I talked about baptism interviews before a few minutes ago, so I might as well go back to that. I never tell people, okay, I have interviewed you. Uh, I see that you are doing really well. Uh, I save you now. No, what we say is, I affirm that what you say about you being saved is true. The difference is when you affirm something, you don't create it and make it be. You affirm that it already is there. So when Jesus is pointing to Philadelphia and, to Philadelphia and says, hey, I see what you're doing. I see your good works. I don't think what he's saying is keep that up and then I'll save you. I think he's saying it affirms that you're the, the person, you are the people that I give this promise to that I don't give to everybody. This promise goes to the people who are in. So he begins by explaining that he sees their works. And what you'll see here is this sort of rhythm of what they do and then his promise. What they do and then his promise. I know your works. Behold this unshuttable door. Uh, you've kept my word. You've not denied my name. Behold, enemies are going to bow to you. You've kept my word. You've been patiently enduring. Uh, I'm going to keep you from this coming trial. So that, that's what we see in verses 8 to 12. Let's read it. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power. And yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you, because you have kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. To the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You see in those first few verses there, he talks about their works, and then he gives them the promise of the open door. 
what were their works? Well, they kept his word. They didn't deny his name. We've seen this in the other, epistle, uh, in the other letters to the other churches. They, they kept his word. They didn't deny his name when they were asked to. And he says, behold, all those people that are your enemies now, not just Rome, not just the Roman governors, but the people that say Jesus is the Messiah. You guys have got the wrong Messiah. And they call themselves Jews. They're not Jews. Why aren't they Jews? Because they missed the Messiah. That's why. The ultimate Jewish king was missed. And so they're lying to you. But there will come a time where they will bow before you and recognize you're the one upon whom I've set my love. You've kept my word. You've, you've kept patient endurance. And so I will keep you from the coming trial. I'm going to talk about that coming trial in just a second. But what I want to, the point I want to score with you here is that this is either earning it or proving it. And you kind of have to make a choice. Jesus is either saying, I see your works, and because of your works, you've earned this promise. Or he's saying, I see your works, and you really are the ones to whom I've made this promise. Big difference. Big difference. Now, if this was the only verse we had, I don't know of the position I would take, but this taken together with all the other verses we have, and you put them together, it is not contradictory to say, I think Jesus is looking at the church going, good works, you actually are real believers, and if you prove it all the way to the end, demonstrate that you're really believers, you will partake in these promises that I've given to all true believers. I don't think he's saying, grit it out to your last waking moment, but if you just drop too bad of a cuss word in your last second before that car hits you, you, know, you might not be in. That's the kind of paranoia that would have to set in if it's only secured by our ability to open and shut the door. Now, what does he mean by you're spared from trial? This might sound like a digression, but it, I think it connects. Some people say, see, Jesus isn't going to let his church go through trials. Uh, my first response to that would be go to many websites that are available and find out what's going on to churches all over the world that are experiencing trials now. They're not Christians. No, God wouldn't let his elect experience trials. Have you ever had a disease? What, are you not a Christian? We go through trials. So what does he mean here that I'm going to spare you from the trial? I think what he means is I'm going to spare you through the trial. And once again, it's not because the Greek word is actually from instead of through, but there is flexibility in the wording. We're not going to turn here. But just, but just listen, in, in John 17, 15, Jesus uses the same phrase. I do not ask, the same exact phrase, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So does Jesus mean you will never experience anything from the evil one? Or does he mean you'll experience the evil one, but you'll be kept from losing to him? Well, it's obvious it's the second one, because in all these other places in Scripture, we were warned to withstand the evil one withstand the evil day stand our ground ephesians 6 right peter talks about satan roaming around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour so he can't be saying if you're a christian the devil can't affect you at all he's saying the devil can't beat you similar phrase in james 1 where uh, james says we're to keep ourselves unstained from the world does that mean there are no stains in the world to experience no he means your white garment won't be sullied because you'll make it in the end. So, so here's the key difference. A little nerdy, but I think it's really important. When he says, I'm going to keep you from this trial, just like those other verses, it doesn't mean keep you from experiencing it. It means keep you from losing to it. 
And there's a few other reasons why I think that's the case. The first one is the context. You look at the next lines. Does it sound like it's easy street? Does it sound like they're not going to have trials? He says, hold fast. What's the hold fast to if it's going to be easy? Verse 12, if you're one who conquers, conquers what? If it's just all going to be easy. If you look at all these letters to all these churches, he's asking them to fight. Because there is a fight, not that he'll spare them from the fight. It's hard to be a Christian. As a Christian, you have to withstand all of the gas spills, earthquakes, chemical trains, you know, everything that everyone else has to experience, you have to experience it. And then another layer of being shamed, being controlled by pronouns, right? Being told your view of sexuality is, is horrific to kids, which is backwards. You have this whole other layer that you don't escape from, that Jesus doesn't go, well, you know, I'm just going to spare you from it in the sense that and nothing will be hard for you. He told his disciples the opposite. Are you ready to die for me? Pick up your cross? Live a life of sacrifice for me? It's not a life of comfort. So I don't think he's sparing them from the trial, meaning he doesn't experience it. It's through the trial, but they will win. He's seeing, trying to see who the remnant are. Here's the other piece of evidence. He says why the trial is coming. He says that uh, you've kept my word uh, about patient endurance. This is verse 10. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Why do you try somebody for anything? I mean, it's a test, right? Why do you test anyone, or why do you ever take a test? To see if you pass for whatever the goal might be. If I pass this test, I get this goal. If I fail the test, I don't get that goal, right? That's pretty simple. If all of his Christians that are faithful, he pulls them to the side so they don't experience a test, and everyone else are not Christians, what is he testing them for? There's nothing to test. He's testing the believers to see if they're the remnant that we talked about last week. Who are the real people? Who are the real believers? Not just people that show up to church, but who really is in And trials expose that. I know some of us feel like some mornings it's hard to come to church, and I I get that. But overall, it's pretty easy to come to church. There's not really a fear of getting arrested here yet, today. But that time will come. Then what does attendance look like? See, that's what trials do. Trials bring to the surface the people that are really in and push to the margins kind of those who... We're kind of just in it for convenience purposes. But if he spares all of us from trials, then the whole point of these letters to all these seven churches don't make any sense. But the point is made clear if he's saying, hey, there are trials, but I'm going to spare you through the trials. I'm going to save you through the trials. I'm going to save you from being lost in it, conquered by it. And trials can show up in all kinds of ways. It could be persecution. It could be pressure that people put on you to be less of a Christian than than you are. It could be when obedience takes you out of your comfort zone. Everybody does good things when it's comfortable. Do you do what's right when it's inconvenient? Do you do what's right when it's not comfortable? That's a trial. It could be how you respond to appropriate correction. If all we ever did around here at CFC was praise one another, it'd be a pretty comfortable place. But if somebody 
appropriately, I say, corrects you. There are also inappropriate corrections to which you should volley a response. And so I don't, well, prove that to me. I don't think that's right. But if it is right, there's a test. Because the ugly side of ourselves wants to rebuke the correction, even if it's a good correction, because we just don't want to be told anything. But this is a place where we have to come in humility and receive appropriate corrections at times. So, I think what this is saying is if our lives affirm through faith, that affirmation of faith, the true proof of your faith is endurance. And if you endure, Christ is saying, that's how you know you're mine forever. That's how you know I make you a pillar. That's how you know my name is going to be put on you. That's how you know you get a crown. Last thing I want to unpack as quickly as I can, uh, but y'all ain't going anywhere because you're staying for lunch, so uh, we're, gonna, we're, we're going in. I'm just kidding. I'm half kidding. Okay. Listen. Here's a verse that many would use to say, look, hey, you can lose your salvation. He says it right there. He says uh, about in verse 10, I'll keep you from the, uh, from the trial for those who dwell on the earth. Okay, fine. Then verse 11, I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. You can lose your crown. You can drop your crown. He wouldn't drop a crown, but you can lose it, right? That's, that's what it sounds like if you take it by itself. And if you lose your crown, then you don't get everything else that he's talking about here. You don't get to be made into a pillar in the temple of God. You don't get to dwell in God's temple. You don't get to uh, bank on the security that you'll never go out of it. You don't get a name of God written on you or written on the city, the new Jerusalem. None of that is there for you if you uh, lose your crown or if someone seizes your crown. So I want to try to unpack this really quickly because it just looks like the opposite of everything I just said. This is, again, channeling Isaiah 22. You can dwell on Isaiah 22 later if you want to see like where this is coming from, where God takes the crown from Shebna and gives it to Eliakim. Why is that important? Who gives the crown? Who grants the crown? God does. God grants it in Isaiah 22. He's like, you got a crown? Real nice. I take it from you, and I give it to Eliakim. Why? Because I said so. That's why. God grants the crown. Now, if that's true, which I think it's, it's clear that it is, we see in a couple places nearby, remember chapter 2, verse 10? You could probably not even flip a page and see it in chapter 2, verse 10. Actually, Mayan has to flip a page. Um, where he brings this up here. Here's where the first place we see the crown. Do not fear about what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into a prison that you may be tested. There it is again. Does he keep his people from being tested? No, he's telling them you're going to be tested. All right? For 10 days you'll have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. So you see that he's channeling that endurance. Those who endure receive the crown. When do they get the crown? Later. So when, when he says here, be careful no one seizes your crown, he doesn't mean I gave you a crown and then a couple years into it you messed up and now you lost your crown. But if you go to a revival, then maybe I'll save you again and then I'll give you the crown back. And if you lose it again, call your pastor and maybe you can get it back. In the end, if you endure, you get the crown. And when he says let no one seize your crown, he means seize the promise that in the end, you will receive 
that crown. How do you know that you're one who's going to get the crown? Endurance. Endurance isn't how you prove it. Endurance is how you know it. There's a big difference. Okay? A mechanic doesn't become a mechanic by fixing cars. A mechanic shows that he or she is a mechanic by fixing cars. Now you might go, no, 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 they have to pass a test. Does the test include fixing a car? In which case you're proving that you've got the goods to be a mechanic, and the person that gives you the pass, I'm going too far into this illustration because I'm not a mechanic, right? But the person that goes, okay, I wave the wand. You are now a mechanic. Didn't really make you a mechanic. They affirm that you've got the goods to be a mechanic. Why? You proved it in the garage somewhere. What I'm saying is, you don't earn Christianity and then you're given Christianity. You prove that you are a Christian, and then when Jesus grants the crown, it's showing what you were the whole time, not what you became in the end. Are you a citizen of God's kingdom later or now? It's now. So when he says, don't let anybody seize your crown, what he means is don't let anybody mess with your endurance. Endure all the way to the end, not in order to earn it, but to prove that you are in. I have other verses here that I can go into, but I, I think I've, I've scored the point. And there are, just, there are just so many. You think of the parable of the sower where Jesus talks about there's different soils. That's different kinds of people that get saved or hear the word. You remember that one? We're not going to turn to it, but he, he talks about the sower sows. The word of God is sown like a sower sows seed. You ima- imagine in ancient times, they didn't have machines, but some guy would just have a big sack of seed, and he's just throwing it everywhere, man, on the road, on the path, weedy places, rocky places, all kinds of places, the field, right? He doesn't care. He's, just, he's got so much seed, he's throwing it out indiscriminately on four different types of soils. And if you remember that parable, of the four different types of soils, how many are actually saved? One. Well, why are there three different kinds? Of those three that aren't saved... How many are obviously not saved? They just reject it. I don't want the gospel. I don't want it. One, okay? That leaves us with two soils that looked like they were saved the whole time, but weren't. And do you remember how that was exposed? For one of those soils, it exactly was persecution. Comfort. When life gets hot, You either endure because your roots are actually deep or you get scorched up because there were no roots there. Of four soils, Jesus has two of them showcasing some people don't endure. Is it because they lost salvation? No, it's because they didn't have it. They never actually accepted it, which he makes clear at the end of that parable, by the way. Only that one soil actually accepted God's word. The rest kind of received it in some way, but the word accept is only for that last soil. Some of you remember fondly Philippians 2 where... Paul tells the Philippians to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You remember that? And we use that, work it out. If you don't work it out, you don't have it. Work out your, fear and, or your salvation with fear and trembling, comma, because God works the good works in you, he says. I don't insert it. That's what he says. So yes, I have to work out my salvation with fear and trembling. I have to endure it to the end. But how do I do that is the question. God has to do it in me. I can't do it. I can't do it on my own. This is why... Paul emphasized to that same church that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Outside of that strength, I'm weak. In my weakness, I don't make it. So, you see in chapter 4, verse 10 of Revelation, the scene where we'll see in a couple of weeks, 
where the saints take their crowns and cast them before the throne, saying, you're worthy. None of us are going to be up there like, man, look at this crown. I did it. Fist bump each other like, yeah, look at my crown. Wow, mine has one more jewel than you. We're going to take those crowns and be like, why am I wearing this? I didn't do it. It was your strength. You're worthy. You made all things. And just like you spoke light into space, you spoke light into my life. That's why I'm in. And church, what I'm telling you is we're not supposed to become lazy mode where we go, oh, okay, so I'm guaranteed a crown. Because if you're in lazy mode, you're not a Christian. That's a hard message. If you're sitting there going, man, I don't know if I would endure. If if we were going to be arrested, I knew we were going to be arrested next Sunday. I don't think I would come. The answer is not go start working out, go watch a couple Rocky movies, get motivated, maybe you'll do it. The answer is turn to Jesus Christ because he makes cowards conquerors and that's the only way that it'll happen. One person holds the key to the door. And if you want to walk through that door, it's turning to Christ. He makes you a pillar, he makes you immovable, and he grants you his new name that we got from chapter 2, verse 17. Our lives endure because of his grace. And if that's true, and we can cling to his promises that in the end, no one will have seized our crown because God is an effective shepherd through his son, Jesus Christ. Amen? All right, I want to pray, and then we'll close in a song. Father, as we do that, as we prepare our hearts uh, to enjoy fellowship together over a meal, we pray that as we sing, we'd be reminded of your power, your grace to keep us. We thank you that for so long we've been able to experience very few trials, relatively speaking, when we think of churches in other times or even now in other places. We pray that you would strengthen us, encourage us, help us to not go to sleep wondering if we will get a crown, but trusting that you will grant it, and in the moments that we need it, you will give us the courage to stand and not fold. We lean on you for it now, Father, and even as we sing, Lord, would you work that grace into our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and close with me in a song?